In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The abortion pressure mounts on Georgia's leaders. Georgia Right to Life is ready to join in the effort to make the personhood amendment a reality in Georgia. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluston, along with the other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. If you're just listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Coming up later, we're going to talk about the latest in the January 6th hearings and a public safety battle brewing between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. But first, a six-week abortion ban like the one Georgia's passed isn't enough for some anti-abortion leaders. On Monday, George Right to Life pressed Governor Brian Kemp to call a special session to pass legislation that would enshrine so-called personhood rights in the state constitution. We urge you to immediately convene a special session of the Georgia General Assembly to pass an amendment to the state constitution, which reads, and I quote, Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution is amended by adding a new paragraph to read as follows. Paramount right to life. This state shall recognize the paramount right to life of all human beings as persons at any stage of development from fertilization to natural death. Patricia, to me, this just illustrates how thorny this issue is for Republicans. Governor Kemp, of course, signed into law that 2019 um, measure that he likes to call the heartbeat bill that he likes to still say is one of the toughest anti-abortion measures in the nation. But for many advocates, for many conservatives, it still doesn't go far enough because it is not an outright ban on abortion. And as we've reported, Herschel Walker, the Senate Republican hopeful, he supports 100% outright ban, even in cases of rape, incest, and when the life of the mother is at stake. Burt Jones, the lieutenant governor nominee up until recently, he also supported what we thought was going to be an outright ban until he kind of rolled back and said that instead he supports exceptions causing for rape, incest. And even Governor Kemp has said personally he supports only the exception when it, when the life of the mother is at stake, and he would even support an outright ban, including incest and rape. But instead he wants to advocate for this 2019 law. So it, it's a tricky subject for a lot of conservatives. I think there is definitely a split within the anti-abortion and Republican movement happening right now. Because as you said, there is this one 
kind of most extreme version with no exceptions whatsoever. And so when you look at the language that anti-abortion groups want, especially Georgia Right to Life, what they're talking about is Article 1, Section 1 of the Georgia Constitution. That is also the clause that has the most um, kind of the strongest privacy protections anywhere in the Georgia Constitution. And that's the portion of the Constitution that anti-abortion advocates want to change, but those who are pro-abortion access say that's exactly where the protections for women could lie if there's a state challenge to this bill. Obviously, nothing's going to happen anymore at the U.S. Supreme Court for the time being, but if it's appealed here in the state at the state level, pro-abortion access activists say that's exactly where they would find those privacy protections. The second piece is that when they're talking about personhood, the reason that's important is because if you get into the U.S. Constitution and the state constitution, there's an equal protection clause. And the equal protection talks specifically about not depriving any person of life, liberty, or property. So if you redefine person as being somebody who is alive to somebody who is at any stage in human development, including conception, that totally changes the meaning of the Georgia State Constitution and who it applies to. And so that's why it's so important to those anti-abortion activists. It's not just a talking point in their opinion. It really would change the game and change it permanently in a way that no election in 2022 could change and go back and undo. And here's when we like to remind our listeners, our readers, that Georgia lawmakers, Governor Kemp and other Republican leaders are not poised to make any sweeping new changes, add new restrictions on abortion. We often like to remind how fraught the 2019 debate was over the restrictions that were passed in the law. They passed with just one vote to spare in the Georgia House after months of divisive debate. There are Republican members of the Georgia House who still believe they lost their seats in the state legislature because of this debate. And Passing a constitutional amendment would be even higher hurdle. It requires two-thirds of a vote in both chambers and a majority referendum support by Georgia voters. So no, this is not about to happen. Governor Kemp has not endorsed this idea, nor has he said he would push for uh, more sweeping bans on abortion. But still, it does exemplify the push that now that anti-abortion activists have won this major victory in the U.S. Supreme Court. They're saying this is just the start of the battle. And it's already happening in neighboring states. So in Alabama, abortion has now been banned as of Friday with no exceptions except for the life of the mother. And in South Carolina, their six-week abortion ban just went into effect yesterday. And Republicans in that state legislature do plan to go into special section to talk about a full ban. And so um, while that's not happening here in Georgia, it's relevant because those are the conversations happening among Republicans. And so a lot of the conversation, when we hear about proposals, we'll hear, well, you know, state X is doing it. So if you look at something like the state income tax elimination, we always hear, well, Florida Republicans have done it. Why can't Georgia Republicans do it? And so Republicans from the furthest right side of the party will say this is happening in other states and these are happening in neighboring states. Now, Democrats will also say that's the exact reason why Georgia should not do it, because it will create an entire sort of swath of the deep south where there would be no abortion access for women. And right now already, Georgia is seen as kind of a not a safe haven, but an easier state for women to access abortion. And so there was actually a lot of reporting out of Columbus over the weekend that women from Alabama were coming to Columbus to to access abortion services because as of about 
you know, noon Friday, that was over in Alabama for the foreseeable future. And we've already had news in Georgia here of even a clinic, abortion clinic closing in Savannah. So things are happening really, really fast. So let's talk the flip side of the coin is Democrats. You know, we've talked about how Democrats want nothing more than to refocus this race away from the economy, away from high energy prices, high inflation, and towards outrage from, especially from middle of the road voters who might've voted reluctantly for Democrats in 2020, but might be veering back to the GOP. They want to reframe this race. But at the same time, Stacey Abrams hasn't really illuminated her complete position on abortion. Let's hear what what she said on Fox News this past Sunday. Do you support any limitation on abortion or does it, do you think that women should have the right to have an abortion all the way up to nine months? I believe an abortion is a medical decision. And I believe that that should be a choice made between a doctor and a woman and in consultation with her family. But I think the challenge that we have is that we keep putting this in a political space. This is a medical decision. And the medical choices that should be made should be governed by what is best for that woman and what is best at the suggestion of and advice of their doctor. So Patricia, there's Stacey Abrams, the Democratic nominee for governor, saying that it should be a decision left up to the women receiving abortions, their doctors, their families. But also at the same time, she's not saying outright there should be any limits. And that's opening the door for Governor Kemp's allies and other Republicans to essentially say that she supports abortions up until birth, which is not true. But at the same time, it's leaving a vacuum where Republicans and her critics can say that. She was asked about this in multiple interviews. And again and again, she really has resisted and insisted on not being pinned down on this answer. And I think that intellectually, it's a very sound, consistent argument. She is so intellectual. I think sometimes you can see her brain just zooming along a million miles ahead of all the rest of us. But it does leave this huge vacuum for Republicans to run into. And they are more than happy to run into that. And so by not specifying where she would be comfortable having some limits, it leaves a question about what would leadership on this issue under a Governor Abrams look like? I think voters prefer more certainty than that. And then it also, again, it just lets Republicans just come in and kind of clobber her with a lot of accusations that are things that she's never said before, like she supports it up into the last, you know, the last day of pregnancy. But she never said that she didn't. And so it it just leaves the door open there. You can really contrast that to somebody like State Senator Jen Jordan, who is running for attorney general. And so she's running against Chris Carr, the sitting attorney general. And between those two candidates, the Republican and the Democrat, you have this huge contrast between Chris Carr, who is actively pushing to implement the state's six-week abortion ban. And Jordan said yesterday on a call with reporters, she would not defend that bill in court. She's like, I don't think it's a viable law. I don't think it's legal. I don't think it is anything that I would ever spend any resources on defending in court. She wouldn't stand behind it as the state's attorney general. But even she said, she was asked, as all candidates will be, where do you see the limits on abortion? What are you comfortable with? And she said she'd be comfortable at where the Supreme Court had it previously at viability, which is about 23 weeks. And sort of the the intellectual underpinnings of that is that in the balance between the interests of the mother and the interests of the child, when the child is is viable outside the womb, is when the state's interest 
protecting that child would take over. That was sort of how the Supreme Court had interpreted viability. So even she would say, you know, about 23 weeks is what that means, although she didn't even say a specific week limit. But Abrams has taken a different route. Um, Those are two shades of that side of the coin. But voters up and down the ballot, I think it's incredible what's being presented in November, these huge contrasts in the governor's race, attorney general's race, legislative races. Um, Would you vote for HB 41? Would you not? Would you vote to repeal it? There are all these questions locally, even district attorneys. uh, Many of them have already been recently elected in 2020, but district attorneys in Georgia have said, I'm not going to enforce that bill. I've got a lot of priorities and prosecuting doctors for abortion is not on my list. So voters are going to have a real say in 2022 about the direction on this issue very, very quickly. And they're going to have choices that offer them a lot of stark differences. Yeah, at least a half dozen district attorneys, uh, including several from Metro Atlanta and then from Athens, from Augusta, from Macon, from Savannah. So mid-sized large blue cities have said that they're, yeah, that they're not going to enforce the anti-abortion law if and when the federal courts allow it to go forward here in Georgia, and which we expect is going to be within, really within a few weeks. This is also an issue for Senator Raphael Warnock, who, like other Democrats, predicted this was going to be a game changer. Let's listen to his rally in Valdosta from over the weekend. Instead of showing up in the patient's room, why don't you show up in the classroom and protect our children from all of this violence? Now, Patricia, you were talking about the clear contrast in this race and these political contests. Well, there's even a starker contrast between where Warnock and Walker stand on abortion than there is between Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams, because as we mentioned, Herschel Walker is out there supporting a 100% ban, whereas Raphael Warnock calls himself a pro-choice pastor and puts that at the center of his campaign for a full six-year term. So yeah, you you can't have the differences as stark as those in politics right now. <laughs> yeah, and I was amazed at that speech in Valdosta. The Valdosta Daily Times pulled that audio. They were there covering that. The response was unbelievably supportive. Now, he was in front of a group of Democrats, but I think it really speaks to the potency of this issue. And you could hear it was mostly women in that crowd. You could hear the women cheering. And the way that Warnock frames this and the way that Abrams frames this is really squarely on women, on women's choice, women's right to make this decision, not blaming women, describing in detail how difficult this decision is for women, but it really is sort of an empathetic level of giving it all over to the women in this position. When you listen to Republicans, it is really very starkly about the baby, about the fetus, about that potential life or what they see as that life at the moment that that 
that that um, I guess I'll just be technical. <laughs> the moment that that egg is fertilized, um, the moment that conception happens, that is who they're fighting for. And so they're framing these in very, very stark terms. When you get to actual debates, you'll start to hear more nuance on these kinds of issues during actual legislative debates. But the way these candidates are presenting themselves, the way the parties are presenting this is really one side seems to be talking uh, almost entirely about women. The other side is speaking almost none about women. The Republican approach to this, I think, is a real risk heading into a midterm election when we know that women will be the majority of voters. All women are not at all you know, entirely pro-life or entirely anti-abortion or entirely pro-abortion access. But to frame it without discussing women as a part of the conversation, I think, is a risk for Republicans making this choice in their messaging. And dear listeners, I tried to get you fresh audio from Governor Kemp earlier today. I went to one of his events in downtown Atlanta and waited outside patiently afterwards to catch him for a quick question. And it was one of maybe one of the first times where he ducked me. He said, Bluestein, I've got to go to middle Georgia. I've got to to make a campaign flight. They knew, of course, I was going to ask about an abortion. And it's not like he hasn't spoken about the issue. But again, you know, to me, at least it's a vivid illustration of the fact that Republicans right now do not really want to be talking about this. You know, he took a victory lap. He said this was a an historic victory for life. So he certainly, you know, released a glowing statement. But at the same time, you know, give him a truth serum. What would he rather be talking about right now? He'd rather be talking about Joe Biden, high energy prices, inflation, scarcity of household goods, and attacks on Stacey Abrams' stance on public safety, right? That's what he wants to be talking about. He probably isn't all that eager to be speaking and taking questions about where he stands on abortion and whether he'd back new limits next year in the state legislature if he wins a second term and all that. So it is going to continue to be a, a, a fight over the narrative, isn't it, Patricia? Oh, 100%. And, you know, Brian Kemp is back in the situation where he is going to be getting clobbered from the left and the right on this issue. So as much as we know Democrats are criticizing him, that far right wing of the Republican Party, he needs all of those votes. A lot of those are those same Trump voters that he needs to win over. If he can't demonstrate his commitment to them on this issue, that's a tough one for them to swallow. This is their only issue in many cases. And so, um, but I thought it was so interesting what you said about him uh, most likely wanting to be talking about gas prices and grocery prices. Even Paul Brown, who used to be a member of Congress and is now, um, you know, kind of a very frontward facing leader in the anti-abortion movement was at a press conference on Monday and talked about even the current HB 41, talked about any any access at all to abortion is evil and sinister. And he called abortion the sacrament of the national religion that progressives want, which is secularism. So that is how he's framing it. And then he Hmm. said, but you know, I think most voters are going to be voting on gas prices. I don't really think this is going to be an issue. (laughs) And so if (laughs) even he is trying to sort of change the subject over to, oh, and by the way, don't forget gas is expensive, which it is. I think it speaks to the messaging that Republicans are really going to have to deal with. The reality is that both of these are big issues for a lot of voters. It's not either or. Voters are going to go in and make a choice based on which one at the moment feels most important and frankly, most existential. I don't know what people will pick, but it's possible for voters to have both of these things on their minds, but then make kind of a tough choice at the end, which is more important and whichever party, whichever candidate, again, up and down the ballot, they're going to have to make the case that they can handle both. 
this is why voting is such a deeply personal issue, right? There's so many different factors that take place. And it's, it's why we love podcasts like this one, so we can go deep into all these different issues. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the three political insiders at the AJC. And we're also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. For a limited time, even, you can get six months of unlimited digital access to the AJC for just 99 cents. Politics breaking news, sports, dining, and all of our newsletters, yes, including the Jolt, for less than $1. It's our best offer of the year for the best journalism in Georgia. Go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast to get unlimited digital access for the next six months for less than a buck. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. And Patricia, the jolt has been jock full of information, a lot of it digesting the post Roe v. Wade world, but also so much of it digesting other things happening on the campaign trail because it really doesn't stop. And Georgia has really been a focus of the January 6th committee hearings too. Absolutely. And last week was just one of those weeks where we had so much going on. I don't remember what week it was, but it was a recent week where we had runoffs and January 6th hearings and no time to process any of it. We, of course, want to get it ready and uh, reported for our readers, but it's a lot going on in Georgia right now. And the January 6th hearings are a perfect example because Donald Trump has an obvious obsession with Georgia and has had since he lost the election here. And that has really resulted in putting January 6th and Georgia in the same conversation because overturning the Georgia election results really, in reality, has ended up being a key goal of Donald Trump's throughout that, throughout that period. And Patricia, let's listen to former Mark Meadows aide Cassidy Hutchinson. Of course, Meadows was Trump's chief of staff. Cassidy Hutchinson was the surprise witness at Tuesday's January 6th committee hearings, and she gave this testimony. Ms. Hutchinson, do you recall seeing this tweet in which the president said the vice president did not have the courage to do what needed to be done? I do. Ms. Hutchinson, what was your reaction when you saw this tweet? As an American, I was disgusted. It was unpatriotic. It was un-American. We were watching the Capitol building get defaced over a lie. Patricia, there were so many moments during 
her testimony and so much news being made that I'm frankly shocked it hadn't come out earlier with all the books written, all the front page stories, all the leaks from the Trump White House. We're still learning new revelations that kind of changed the game, you know, and, and certainly changed these investigations into all that surrounded January 6th. Yeah, we didn't hear a lot from Cassidy Hutchinson about Georgia in this particular hearing, but what we did hear was just totally riveting and shocking at a lot of points. She really took listeners and that committee inside the rooms with her in the days leading up to January 6th. And then as the um, as the sort of top aide to Mark Meadows, who is the White House Chief of Staff, she was in all of the rooms where the action was happening. Her office, they showed sort of a model of the White House, how close her office is to the Oval Office. She was in the um, motorcades going to and from the January 6th rally. She was at the White House after that rally. She described, I think was most shocking, something maybe we many people had suspected but didn't had not heard details of before. Donald Trump's explosive personality described him trying to force the Secret Service to take him to the Capitol on January 6th which they said they were not able to do because they didn't have the security apparatus to do it. And he, in her retelling, reached over and tried to grab the steering wheel from his driver, which his own security detail had to kind of grab his hand and say, Mr. President, you can't do that. Once they were back at the White House, he was still so incensed that when he was in the dining room, she came in a few minutes later and saw sort of ketchup dripping down the wall. And it's because the president had thrown his lunch against the wall. And she said it was not at all the first time that he had thrown dishes and thrown utensils just and in the White House against the White House walls. So th- that was one piece of it. And then she also really described how one after another, Trump's own staff, members of Congress, Republicans, Sean Hannity, were reaching out to Donald Trump on the day of January 6th, just begging him to intervene with the rioters and tell them, especially once they were starting to chant, hang Mike Pence, the message back from Mark Meadows was, listen, guys, Donald Trump doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. You know, you get the sense that had he gotten his wish and had he gone to the Capitol that night, this could have turned from an insurrection attempt into a, a coup attempt, right? An actual coup attempt that we were seeing before our very eyes. And you just think about all of the people who intervened along the way. And it seemed like leading up to January 6th, we knew about people who had tried to intervene with the president, all of the lawyers, all of the state people going against the state legislatures. You can't do this. You cannot overturn the election. But even down to the moment that the Secret Service was physically taking him to the Capitol and his security detail had to grab his arm. It's like one person after another after another trying to keep him from this moment and even keep him from himself. And it was just a totally riveting, fascinating, you know, just amazing testimony. At the end, Liz Cheney also said something that was really chilling. She said that they had heard from witnesses who have been in being contacted by Donald Trump's team and saying, don't forget, he reads the transcripts. Don't forget he's watching you. Don't forget he knows you're a team player. We're, that's important to us. And so essentially intimidating these witnesses. And Liz Cheney said that, you know, we take that very seriously. That is against the law. And we will be following up on that. Very secret policy. 
Oh, well, we'll continue to watch the January 6th committee hearings. And what I'm really closely watching and looking for in the next few rounds of hearings is more information about Donald Trump's efforts and his allies' efforts to intervene and directly contact state lawmakers, because we know what happened in Georgia. We know that state lawmakers here were pressured to hold the special session and demand that Governor Kemp call a special session. We know there were attempts. There was, of course, there was those hearings that were specially called hearings that featured Rudy Giuliani and other Trump aides giving flat out lies. And we know what happened in other states like Arizona as well. So we'll be closely watching that. And before we go, let's talk a little bit more about issues involving the governor's race that don't have to do with abortion. There is a growing battle over public safety between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams that really was sharpened a few days ago when Stacey Abrams came out with her plan to give certain law enforcement um, officials, we're talking some Georgia State Patrol officers, some supervisions, correction supervisors, and some community supervisors, give them pay raises to set the minimum floor for their salaries at $50,000. So we're talking about ten dollars to $13,000 pay raises for those different officials. Patricia, let's listen to Governor Kemp talk about Stacey Abrams and his view of her stance on whether or not police and law enforcement deserve more resources. Hey, look, that's just some good old political spin right there, Bill. She didn't want to address her own words that she said she would defund the police. That is not the camp that I'm in. Uh, Last year, well over a year ago, we passed legislation to keep rogue local governments from defunding the police. I'm the guy that ran on going after street gangs four years ago. We've been doing that. Since I got in office, I've had to deal with other local elected officials at the Democratic level in the city of Atlanta and other places that wouldn't go after violent criminals. So now the state has stepped in and started doing that. Thankfully, we have local leaders now that are in that fight with us. Georgians want somebody that's going to keep their community safe. And that's what we've been working toward every day. And thankfully, now we're pushing others at the local level to join with us to do just that. Patricia, I feel like this is just the beginning or the middle, or but we're not nearly at the end of the back and forth between these two rivals on issues of law enforcement. Because look, Stacey Abrams has a very different view of public safety than Brian Kemp does. She wants to reinstitute the criminal justice panel that Nathan Deal had over his two terms in office that led to a number of reforms and overhaul of criminal justice rules that diverted more nonviolent offenders away from long-term prison sentences and towards treatment programs. She has a different view of drug policy than he does. And she has a different view of police training and police standards than he does. But at the same time, he's going to make the case as often as he can that she supports defunding the police because of interviews she did, including one with CNN, where she indicated that she was willing to shift resources away from police. Uh, it might have been a gaffe. It might have been a misstep. You know, She hasn't completely retreated. She hasn't said she was wrong when she said what she said. But at the same time, she's always said that she does not want to defund the police. In fact, she wants to pour more resources into law enforcement. And I think this is another example of Abrams really having kind of an intellectually consistent approach to this, but it is not 
clear entirely all the time. And so in that interview with CNN, um, she said, I don't want to defund the police. And they said, but if you had to, you know, if you had to. <laughs> and so they were pushing her. You know, reporters want an answer, yes or no. Um, what she has said is she thinks it's a false choice. I don't think that we should have to choose between funding the police and also funding social justice services and sort of uh, other efforts to have people diverted from jail, uh, let out of jail in instances where it may not be entirely necessary to serve the full sentence, just sort of a lot of kind of a more nuanced approach to it, I think. But as that conversation is happening, the reality on the ground in these cities is extremely grim when it comes to crime. Macon in particular is continuing to have more murders in that city than they've ever had before. They've sort of reached a a kind of a record murder rate and that just keeps kind of increasing. They're just struggling how to break this cycle of violent crime in Atlanta, right after Andre Dickens was inaugurated, it kind of felt like there was a little bit of a dip. But then I have to tell you, living in Atlanta, the news every single day feels like another sort of multi-person homicide. Over the weekend, there were um, three people shot in Buckhead. Somebody horribly was shot at a Subway sandwich um, place over mayonnaise. Literally, a woman murdered over mayonnaise. Yeah. And so these headlines continue to face voters in a way that has an impact on voters. And they it is not going to be possible to get elected governor in this state without a plan to reduce crime for voters. They are going to demand that. It can be a nuanced approach. It can be uh, less nuanced, but there's going to have to be a plan. And so I think that's why we are hearing from Stacey Abrams early in this campaign about her interest and her commitment to not just funding police, but to giving them a huge pay raise. What That's what that would amount to. Because recruiting and retention is incredibly difficult right now for any state and local law enforcement agency. There's a nationwide competition for law enforcement officers. And so people who are getting paid more naturally are, anyway, who's paying officers more naturally is having a slightly easier time at um, recruiting and retention, but it's still a tough job to fill. I mean, th- these are jobs that are not easy, and right now they're not paid well either. And so both candidates, uh, the governor and Stacey Abrams, are saying, I can do better. Uh, Kemp already has done better than the state was doing before. Abrams is saying she'll put more money into it. Now, this is one of several big ticket items that she's put on the table, which I think some reporters are saying we don't quite understand where all that money is coming from. She says she also won't cut taxes or raise fees. However, it's a part of her platform and at least is pushing her outward commitment toward partnering with police. And I think that's something that's important for statewide candidates, um, given the reality on the ground. Yeah, and we've reported this before, but it also underscores something else. Stacey Abrams has a whole raft of policies and plans for 2023 and beyond. Brian Kemp has hardly said anything about what he would do in a second term. He's mostly running right now on what he's done in his first term. So that's going to change. Governor Kemp is going to have all sorts of different policies and proposals he outlines. But right now, frankly, he doesn't feel like he needs to. He feels like there's no real urgency after he walloped David Perdue and as he leads in the few scattered polls uh, we've seen in a general election matchup against Stacey Abrams. And we'll have so much more on that race, the U.S. Senate race, and all the other races here in Georgia. Thanks as always for listening to Politically Georgia. You can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday and Friday, or as we learned from last week, or as we were reminded, whenever news breaks. And Patricia, I think we only had like, what, six episodes last week. So, you know, we're, <laughs> and they we're getting were all paid amazing. daily for this now. They were each one of them better than the last.
Yes. What's your problem? There's seven days in a week. There's seven days. <laughs> Work even more, people. And look, when giant news breaks, we spring off of whatever we're doing because we want to serve you and we want to connect with our listeners and readers and viewers wherever we can. So be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app that includes Spotify. And please leave us a review. We will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.